morning. I'm Terry Woods with Texas Storytellers, and this is Dixie Cooper. And we're here today to let you know that we have another interesting author and an interesting book to talk to you about. It's going to take two weeks to talk about this book. It's so good. And we're, to, we're brought to you, of course, by Woodlands Online, their Roku station, at KVQT21. You can listen to us on iHeartRadio and anywhere else you can find a podcast. So let's dig in. You know, Dixie, about, oh, I don't know, probably 10 or so years ago, I used to go to the luncheons at River Plantation, which is close to where we both live. It's kind of in the middle of where we both live. And at that time, there were large luncheons and gatherings, um, and there would be guest speakers. Well, I met this couple. Couldn't think of their names for the longest time. But I met this couple who had 10 sons. Think about that. 10 sons. Well, they were there to promote their book, about how they raised their sons. And their own stories were so fascinating that I that that day stuck with me for quite a long time. Well, um, the book, uh, I think you have a copy of, of the book and I have a copy of her latest book. The latest book is Good Families Don't Just Happen. And it was written by Catherine Musco Garcia Prats and her husband, Joseph Garcia Prats, MD. He's a pediatrician, I believe. And they tell the continuing story of their 10 sons. So I thought that for the next couple of episodes, we talk about large families. And of course, I'm thinking about it as well. I'm missing my family that is not here, my sisters and my brother. I actually have a brother, Dixie, in Indiana, um, who is third in line. I'm the oldest, and there were eight of us all together. The other six live in Buffalo, New York. You know, the land of chicken wings and pizza. <laughs> And now the Buffalo Bills, <laughs> always the Buffalo Bills, but they seem to be doing quite well at the moment. So I thought this would be a perfect time to talk about the books and the author. Can you tell us something about the author? Well, yes, as you said, this is the couple of Kathy and Joe Garcia Pratts. They have long line of accomplishments. They lived quite a life. Joe uh, Pratt is actually a neonatologist. And he, uh, he and uh, his wife have been married for 47 years. Oh my gosh. At the time of this, uh, 2020, uh, 47, 48 this coming year. And, and happy new year, everybody. Forgot to tell you that. Um, they had raised 10 sons who are now all grown. They have six daughters-in-law and 20 grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And this is a story of 
of how they made a success of all of this and how they accomplished so much. They were Houston family of the year at one point. They were interviewed by Oprah Winfrey when she had her TV show. She interviewed them about their life and about how they were making a success of it, calling it a recipe for success in families and faith. Um, she was a first grade teacher. So I did have something a little in common with her with that in teaching young children. Um, and he, Joseph, was a professor of pediatrics and practicing neonatology at Baylor's College of Medicine. And he also received the presidential award in 2007 for outstanding teaching at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, <clears throat> their children went to um, the Jesuit school, um, straight Jesuit school, correct? Did I'm saying that correctly? Um, straight Jesuit? Yes, that, that's their, where they went to, their, all their children went to the Catholic school. They have, they have paid tuition for all of them to go to college and they have, at least all the ones that have been old enough to go have gone and graduated and making successes of their lives and their marriages. Um, she also owns her own publishing company called Bosco Publishing. She's the owner and president. Um, and they, their recent release was an award-winning Marian story, The Legend of the Ladybug by local author Maria Illich. And Joe and Kathy's greatest joy is spending time with their family. They take pride in their young men and their sons have become and how they appreciate and accept unique gifts that they have been given by these sons. She was once asked if they were having so many babies so they could have a girl. And she said, no, no. In fact, she said, every time I was told I, was, I had a new son, she was just as proud as ever and would take more if she could. So having boys was just her calling and she seemed to really love it. Um, she was also the president of the Straight Jesuit Mothers Club in 2011 and 12 when her youngest son was a senior, senior there. So this is just a top of the peak of what you know they have done it's unbelievable i have a picture here of their sons would you like me to show it sure if you can... oh wow right so that's all 10 of them i wonder and how long ago that was i believe i think i've got the date here as as 2010 so about 10 years ago um and i think this was probably from the houston post which um, attracted the notice which ran a short story after Timothy's book which the Post no longer publishes so this has been a while back I assume um, but she did write or they've written three books they two books good families don't just happen which you're going to speak about and good sons don't just happen mm. she said as a joke it's when she told somebody said that she ought to write a book about her life and she said well what would I call it my spare time. <laughs> she had none, I'm sure. And she does mention, though, which I was uh, quite impressed with, that she and her husband made certain they made time for the marriage because any family begins with a happy marriage. That's kind of the basis of it. And so I think she, um, that they managed to accomplish that as well. Um, <clears throat> She, they were also on the Gail King show. So they've been around their motivational speakers 
And um, you, as you, that's where you met her. She was she speaking mm -hmm. at the meeting where you went, right? So right. So that's so that's something else they just happened to do. Um, and so they've got quite a life, quite a full life. And I bet their book is very interesting to read. One thing she says, a uh, quote from hers, um, my kids were not always perfectly behaved, but we followed through with consequences. She seems to make a point that kids really aren't so much different today. They still need guidance. They still need parents. Parents need to be parents, not friends. You need to set rules, go by them, when there's consequences, make sure you follow through with them. And then things can go a lot smoother because kids are gonna push your buttons. They are going to push the boundaries. They are going to see what can happen and what they need is a rock. And I, I think I agree with her very highly on that one. So um, this is a little bit about them. And you said you had, uh, you wanted to show their book now and tell us about that. Okay, I have good families don't just happen. And boy, do we know that. And, and I agree too, Dixie. I really think that um, uh, families today aren't much different than families yesterday. I think that the ground rules are what they are. And, and you can teach each other. You can learn with your children. And I, I just don't see too many differences. I do think that that parents need to keep in mind that they need to love their children, of course, but, but give them a good mainframe of knowledge and um, learning and consequences when they need it. And I'm a firm believer in education. I think that's the root of everything. I agree. Which is interesting because I told you that I met her at... Um, uh, uh, that luncheon so many years ago. Well, I met her again, just, a, I guess it was 2019 because I, I uh, am sometimes a team member on accreditation teams for schools. And she is the board chair for a school called San Francisco Nativity Academy of Houston, which is an inner city school in Houston and has um, preschool, um, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, first grade, and now second grade. Their goal is to add a grade a year. And it's right in the middle of uh, an apartment complex so that it serves the community directly. And it has many, many advantages. And one of the things that you do when you're on accreditation team is to meet the board. And we happened to meet the board chair. And I kept thinking, I've met this lady before. I just know I have. And it turns out that she is exactly somebody I had met before with a large family. So was very, very happy to get the book that I'll just show one more time. <laughs> and um, my copy's autographed. Oh, wow. So that's always exciting. I love books. I guess that's why we're here doing this. And, and I love the topics that we, we find to, to mesh together to talk about. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of Good Families Don't Just Happen, there is an introduction. 
I'm not going to read the whole introduction. I want to read like, I think it's the second paragraph and the last paragraph. Well, it's the first and second paragraph. And it was written by um, Father Brian Zinnemann, who was the president of Strake Jesuit College Preparatory at the time this book was written. I was standing in the middle of Strake Jesuit School Cafeteria, which was my assigned post during an open house. The school was hosting more than 1,200 eighth graders and their families who were deciding if Jesuit was the high school for them. Open house is a night we at Jesuit attempt to be on our best behavior and survive. It is a challenge to make a huge crowd feel welcome in such a short period of time. It was the last stop on the tour and by, the, by this time, many people were overwhelmed by the size of our campus and the amount of information they were expected to absorb. In the midst of all this chaos, I met a prospective mother and her son, and I suddenly realized there was something very familiar about her. I recognized her from a distant past, but as a Jesuit priest, I have lived and studied in many different places. Thank goodness she remembered where we, we met first. We both attended Loyola University in New Orleans some 20 years earlier. After we reminisced for a few moments, Kathy and I would be very glad to have her son, Tony, attend our school next year. Knowing a mother's pride, I reassured her that he seemed like a very fine man, young man, and one we would enjoy having among the students. You don't understand what I mean, Father. Tony has nine younger brothers. This is the kind of family every president of an all-boys school dreams about on nights like these. I gave her a hug and told her we were going to be very good friends for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I'm just gonna go to the last paragraph. It says the Roman Catholic church loves families and children. As a Catholic priest, it gives me great joy to be part of this family's life. The church is a community of people who ideally support and love one another. This family's values centers center upon building a stronger community by their example and making their mark by helping others. Many wonder how they find the time. Busy people find the time to do important things and the things that they value. I suspect the Garcia Pratt's family has gotten used to being stared at when they appear somewhere together I also know they think of themselves as quite ordinary folks who love one another. Actually, the success of this family lies in knowing that they love their family, they love each other, and what they have done for their family, others can do for theirs as well. Mm -hmm. One thing she said that I read about it would help with the time element. You know, how do you take care of, you know, really take care of 10 kids? And it was really cool what she did is that she, by age, she would assign them chores to do, age appropriate chores. 
And by the time they were in middle school or high school, those boys were doing their own laundry. They were helping cook the meals and clean up the kitchen. They were helping, the older ones would help with the younger ones. Um, and not that they were, you know, overworked by any means. They just learned the responsibilities of a family, the give and take of it. And this is what you do. And again, with the consequences, if they didn't do their laundry, they didn't have clean clothes. You know, it's up to you to wash them. Nope, I'm not going to do that for you. You know, if you forget your lunch at home, then you go hungry that day. So you don't forget it the next day. You know, mama doesn't run it up there to you at school because she just doesn't have time. So um, she has a real very structured but loving way of, of making it through a large family like this. And consequently, these boys learned responsibility and respect and a, a feeling of caring through their family. Well, I think people um, who have families of any size or, or um, maybe grandparents who take care of children or see their grandchildren quite often can, can learn from what's in this book. I think that's really cool. Well, especially now when families are having maybe more family time than they want. So. Oh my gosh, that's why I thought this would be so good because yeah, all of a sudden families, if they didn't bond before, they sure are bonding now. Yes, yes. Many of them are home with parents working out of a home office and kids working on their laptops for school. And, and you know, as, as things progress, and we know 2021 is going to progress, as thing prog things progress, everybody's not going to all of a sudden go back to the way that they were. Many, right. many of us are going to continue to work from home and children are going to be home more. So I, I think that, yeah, that, that this is a good time to learn from a book like this. I think it's perfect, yeah. All right, so there in the prologue, there's um, a quote from Jackie Onassis. If you bungle raising your children, I don't think whatever else you do will matter very much. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Pope John Paul II wrote, as the family goes, so goes the nation, and so goes the whole world in which we live. I guess that's their way of saying children are our future. I think so, right. And they're our most important responsibility. And so. Yeah, I think, I, I think so too. I am going to skip over the prologue and I'm going to go to chapter one in the beginning. Strong relationships build stronger families. And I like what you said about them taking care of each other because that's prefaced throughout the book in some ways. So in the beginning, there were just the two of us, although that's hard to imagine now. Joe was the younger, eager pediatric intern and Kathy was the new college grad. The ink still wet on her diploma. Kathy graduated from Loyola University on Monday. We had rehearsal dinner on Tuesday. We were married in New Orleans on Wednesday. What a whirlwind. 
Often we joke that it started off on a fast forward, on fast forward, and we're still looking for the pause button now. <laughs> when we took our marriage vows 23 years ago, that's when the book was written. I mean, up until then, we committed our lives to each other. The words for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and in health till death do us part, were spoken sincerely and with conviction. That commitment or covenant, a permanent and unconditional relationship, meant we would work with each other, solve our problems, and make changes when necessary to strengthen our marriage and make each other better individuals. We were not unlike most recently wedded couples who also held the same ideals and felt the same confidence about their own marriages. We told ourselves, like the mission control commander brainstorming methods to rescue Apollo 13, failure is not an option. Since then, we have come so far. We maintain the same ideals today that we did then, but we better understand how to make those ideals a reality. Good marriages don't just happen. We need a love, respect, trust, compromise, and good communication skills, along with shared goals and values, forgiveness, laughter, and acceptance of each other and of change. Building a loving, lasting, joy-filled relationship entails constant effort and a strong commitment by both spouses. Although we knew 23 years ago that we loved and respected each other and that we shared similar goals, values, and commitments, it's what we didn't know that created our stumbling blocks. Now, they, they keep talking about 23 years ago, but how, how long did you say their marriage is right now? 47. 47 years. I bet they run across the same highs and the same stumbling blocks. I'm sure they have. And as their lives change, now their boys are gone. So it's a new world for them. And yeah, every couple goes through stumbling blocks. So I'm sure they did too, that they just learned how to deal with it and how to work it out. And I think that that part that I just read about, um, respect and trust and compromise good communication especially i think that goes for many relationships i think that goes for friendships and um if you're if you're living in um, a household that changes whatever size it is i think that all of that is is similar the same and um gives us all hope as to what can happen next but making the necessary adjust, adjustments, choices, and compromises to strengthen a relationship, I bet, is challenging. We thought, for example, that our communication skills were wonderful since we could talk comfortably about almost anything. Yet we hadn't had a major disagreement during the time we dated or were engaged. However, once we were married, we learned that many of our communication skills were weak and ineffective and was evident when the conflicts that weren't supposed to happen became a reality. We were unaware of the significant 
influence our past family experiences had on how we approached and reacted to situations. Our families had handled such issues as responsibilities, traditions, and conflict in their own ways. One wasn't necessarily better than the other, but they were different. We also thought that because we shared similar goals and values, we were in for smooth sailing. We were erroneously, we erroneously assumed that since our goals and values were similar, our expectations about our marital roles, who would do what, when, how, and where would also be the same. Many of these expectations were based on our parents' marriages and were unrealistic for the kind of marriage we wanted. So we had to make adjustments, choices, and compromises. And this was before we had children. Here's Joe. In retrospect, I didn't have a very realistic idea of what the joys or demands of a marriage relationship would be. I knew I expected to share my life with someone very special who shared my ideals, who would be my friend and make me a better person. That was a good beginning. However, I didn't know what was needed to nurture and develop that relationship. I had a few examples on which to base my ideal. My parents, the parents of close friends, and my colleagues who were married while I was in the medical, while I was in medical school. So when Kathy and I were married, I thought our relationship should be the sum of these marriages, plus the characteristics that I understood would make our marriage loving, strong, and healthy. I thought our marriage would be marked by mutual love and flowed from mutual respect and admiration, as well as, my, as, as, well as by the friendship we had developed. I knew we were both committed to this ideal. And he goes on, but I'll read the last sentence. So our married life began as two very happy people in Houston. Although I was probably happier than Kathy since we were living where I had already established a niche. In the year prior to our marriage, my life in Houston revolved around my training at various Baylor College of Medicine teaching hospitals. I had so much time on my hands that I spent 10 to 12 hours a day at the hospital taking care of patients. And, and that goes on as well. And it says, Kathy was al alone for long periods of time waiting for me to complete my daily hospital duties. How quickly I had forgotten the loneliness of an empty apartment. She had started teaching and wanted to share those experiences with me, but I was usually at the hospital asleep. Our relationship had flourished in a special way before we were married because of our sharing. I realized this way of life was not going to work if we were going to have a marriage that would be healthy and loving as we both wanted it to be. This marked the beginning of my maturing, says Joe. I had to rethink the expectations that I had of my role as a physician. What really makes a physician a good physician? Long hours at the hospital? 
Availability to the hospital, even when I wasn't on call. Dedication to research and academic advancement at the expense of our relationship. Did my patient's medical needs dictate this time commitment? Or did I need to spend those long hours at the hospital? It became increasingly evident to me that my long hours were driven by my need to be accepted and lauded. When I realized my patients would do well after my shift was over and under management of other colleagues, I concentrated on working hard during my required rotation and nights in the hospital. Kathy supported these choices, even though it still meant extra work for her and time alone. Kathy's support and my confidence in my skills as a physician supplanted my drive to please. I matured as an individual and as a physician. Now Kathy has her response. The first year of our marriage was a huge adjustment for me. I began my life with Joe. I moved to a new city where I knew few people and I started my career as a first grade teacher. Joe's hours as a pediatric intern were horrendous. On call at the hospital, even third night, fourth night, getting home the other nights after nine o'clock. I was more alone during this time than I'd ever been in my entire life. Yet, I had never thought loneliness would be a major part of my day-to-day -day life when I was married. I'd always had a lot of people around, whether it was my four sisters and a dorm full of friends. Spending hours and hours alone was hard for me. And she goes on. Teaching and related activities filled most of my time. As a first year teacher, preparation for class consumed many long late hours. I was amazed at the after school hours needed to organize my next day. Spending my days with a classroom of first graders, although challenging, was a joy. I loved what I was doing. And then she goes on to say, you can't build a marriage by fulfilling most of your needs outside of the relationship, like at school or at the hospital. Time together allows a relationship to develop and mature. Yet with two more years of residency, and unbeknownst to me at that time, two years of neonatal fellowship, I didn't see much hope for better hours. I began to understand uh, what I had heard during a couple's retreat we had attended before we got married. It was said that a person with a lot of love and determination to be married to a doctor because of the unique demands and pulls of the profession could be, could be um, demanding. I wish I'd had enough insight at the time to have perused his comments further. I was totally unprepared for the experience and the demands. And I considered myself a strong, independent person. And then there's some highlighted quotes that I'm going to read um, next. Uh, she says, sharing my feelings and needs with Joe was an important step in strengthening our relationship. We learned that what may have worked for us individually before we were married and what may have worked for our parents wasn't always conducive to our growth as a couple. 
And then she says, in the art of loving, Eric Fromm states, to love somebody is not just a strong feeling, it's a decision, it's a judgment, it's a promise. Joe's decision by then to be an integral part of my life and eventually the boys' lives while continuing to practice good medicine demonstrated his commitment to our relationship. I worked hard and still do at understanding the demanding hours and pressure that Joe is under. That doesn't mean it became easy for me to be alone or to go places alone. But since our time together became so much more rewarding, I more willing, more willingly accepted Joe's need to spend time with his patients and their families. Now Joe and I laugh at our early stabs at dealing with conflict and developing effective communication skills. Joe often teases he wasn't prepared for the, my, eventually for, my eventual fourth righteousness. He will tell you, I express myself very well today. He sometimes wonders if he didn't open Pandora's box and one more highlighted. It's important to remember too, that once we had the conflict in the open, out in the open, we had to face the problem and resolve it. We learned to compromise and find solutions we were both comfortable with. And the first uh, thing they learned to do was effective communication skills. It goes on to talk about that, but I'm just going to read one part. And it has to do with respect. I love this because I believe that respect and communication go together. Um, it says, if you dislike the way your family communicated or dealt with conflict, meaning you're the family you grew, you grew up with, be determined to change that pattern for your spouse and children. Respect is at the core of effective communication. The way we speak to and treat our spouse is a sign of respect. It's not only the words that matter. It's the way you say them and what you mean. Sure. Be realistic and acknowledge that good communication requires practice, constant effort, a determined spirit, understanding and trust. We've noticed that the way a couple communicates with each other is often the way they communicate with their children. Thus, the benefits of effective communication between spouses are many. I love that. Yeah. Very good advice. Very good. She is so right about what they went through to, to become who they were. You don't just magically become this happy couple. I'm sure every couple goes through some kind of adjustment because we do come from different backgrounds and different families and even different time periods. You and I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And you remember what it was like for women then? <laughs> the role models that we had growing up. And I lived on a block in Houston. I grew up in Houston and we had more children on our block than any other block in the city and that was the baby boom so there were kids everywhere and almost every mother was a stay-at-home mom mm -hmm. and there was absolutely nothing wrong with that you know there's a lot of a lot of advantages to that but that was my role model that was success for a woman and I saw very little other role models so I had to learn about 
a career and what that could be for me. And um, for you and I, there weren't that many opportunities for careers for women in general. So we had, you know, but eventually that became, that wasn't the way it was. That eventually we did learn that we could be anybody and that marriages could be what you wanted them to be too. It just mm-hmm. took a lot of time and effort and, and effort on both, both sides, both parts. That's absolutely true. I didn't grow up in Houston. I did grow up in Buffalo, New York, where there were tons of children as well and churches at, uh, on every corner. Um, and many families went to church schools, um, which meant we came home for lunch. Now in my family, I think there were six of us in school at one time. So six kids came home for lunch. Um, eventually there were eight children in my family. Um, and what I found out when I got to be a teenager is that I was by far not the largest family um, uh, in the largest family on the block. Um, I have a very, very good friend, even till today. And she, I think she's about in the middle of a family of 12 children. Not all boys and not all girls, quite a mixture. In my family, there was, uh, there is seven girls and, and one boy. My brother lives in uh, Indiana. He's a chemistry professor. And my six sisters still live in Buffalo. They didn't always, they go back and forth. But right now they're all in Buffalo. You know, the land of chicken wings and pizza and good old Buffalo Bills. Um, but there were lots and lots of children at the time we grew up. We all know that. There were people all over the place. When you never went to a skating rink or um, a party or something like that without hundreds of other kids because there were just a lot of us. And um, the way that we grew up, this is one thing that, that, I, that I'm getting from good families don't just happen. The way that we grew up is not necessarily the same way that's going to work for our children as, as they bring up their families. No, Maybe totally different because there's many more choices for one thing. When I went to college, I always say, luckily, I wanted to be a teacher because I went to a small college and, and there were two halves. You could be a teacher or you could be a nurse because that's pretty much what women did. Or they were secretaries. Mm-hmm. My mom was a secretary. She was an awesome secretary from what I what I read and understand and talked to her about. Um, but uh, I wanted to be a teacher, so I did go to a small college where that could happen. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine my grand. One of my granddaughters is a physics major, and she's doing a job that in, entails coding. Now, Dixie, can you imagine that? I can now. Now that I've the years I've been in school, I've seen the changes, and I know that women can be anything now and I've accepted that but growing up you know that just wasn't the case I don't remember seeing a woman doctor growing up and now that's all my doctors seem to be women I'm not all of them but yeah. most of them seem to be women um, I've run into male nurses that wasn't a thing when I was growing up either I never did know of a male nurse um, women I never heard of a woman soldier that actually went out in combat 
or served in other capacities other than being a nurse in the in the army or navy. Uh, so it was. So now it's just totally different, and women want careers and they're seeking careers, and so family life is different. And better or worse, it's it's working for they can make it work, and they do. I see my my son and my nephew and see how their families are working this whole whole thing out with two working parents and raising young children and their kids are doing great they're doing fine so it's just a matter of like this lady saying communication get to know one another how do we work this out you know work the problem failure's not an option <laughs> that's right yeah. something else she says um, it's important to remember that what and how we say and do things makes a difference. We try very hard to think before we speak and consider how our words will affect the other person, whether it's a, it is our spouse, children, or others. It also um, says to avoid negative traps. Um, and she goes on to talk about... Um, the negative traps, but I'm just going to read the highlighted parts. Okay. We avoid letting the routine activities, laundry, cooking, cleaning, homework, and so forth, wear us down. Boy, it sure can. We accept them as part and parcel of raising a family. One evening a few years ago at a high, at a high school function, a mother of two sons grumbled on and on about how much wash she had to do all the time. It was funny sitting there listening to her. After the mom walked away, a father turned to us and said, doesn't she know that you have 10 sons? You have to, you must have incredibly more wash and laundry than she does. Why didn't you say something? We answered, matter of fact, and from experience, that people like her don't understand to the, don't understand. To them, their life and problems are always worse than anybody else's. The positive approach builds on itself and makes our day easier. We remind the boys it takes all of us working together to make it work. Well, by encouraging the boys, respecting their efforts and contributions, we foster a positive home, positive feelings and positive images. Um, as parents, we know it's often easier to do things ourselves. Many times we can complete the task in a more perfect manner. But by not allowing and encouraging young children to do things themselves, we squelch their desire to help out. To rekindle the desire in later years is difficult and the source of much friction. Little Timmy, age two, is already learning how to dress and undress himself. I can remember um, I, my young son loved to dump over baskets, laundry baskets, baskets with his toys. He loved to dump them all over. And he was probably, well, I know he was under two. I'm not exactly sure how old he was, maybe 15 to 18 months. Old enough to dump them over. And for a little, a little smidge of time, 
I would then collectively put the stuff back in the baskets, put the baskets back where they belong. And then he would take them out and dump them. And then luckily I soon realized, oh, this is a game and I'm not winning. And I didn't like that. <laughs> I don't like the rules. <laughs> so I taught him begrudgingly at first, but I taught him to fill the baskets back up. And, and that made such a difference. Maybe not in the cleanliness of the room, it did help with that, but in my attitude towards that kind of thing, it, it made a, such, a, such a difference. So, you know, there's that. And I, I tell you, I loved growing up in a large family and I love the fact that I have two sons and seven grandkids to, to be around. That, that is so fulfilling wow. that I, I can understand why this book is so important. And I'm so glad we did it today. <laughs> yeah, and it's important for any size family, you know, or just any couple, true, starting out their, their lives together. I think it would be beneficial. I think so, too. I think um, as we close, I'm going to uh, say that next week, we are going to have uh, Kathy, Kathy, excuse me, Kathy Musco Garcia Pratt's with us to talk about big families. Oh, and we're also going to have another local mom who has a large family talk to us, too. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. I think it's going to be great. And and everybody, look for the books by um. Uh, let me see. We've got uh, good sons don't just happen. Good families don't just happen. Good marriages don't just happen. And they are written by Catherine Musco Garcia Prats and Joseph A. Garcia Prats, MD. And it says with Claire Cassidy. So for today, I'm Terry Woods. I'm Dixie Cooper. Have and this is Texas Storytellers. We'll see you next time. And we're brought to you by Woodlands Online, their Roku station, KVQ221. And you can find us on any podcast you'd like to listen to. So goodbye for now. <laughs>